This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 762, a conversation with Scott Doonbeer. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 762. It's our conversation with Scott Doonbeer episode. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. Uh, in just a moment, I'll be turning it over to myself, talking with Scott uh, about his career in comics. He started out as an art dealer, and then he worked at an editorial at Wildstorm. He worked with DC, um, well, during the transition from Wildstorm to DC. And then later, he's currently at IDW, where he's been heading up the uh, enormously successful and very popular and also Eisner Award-winning um, artist edition collections uh, from I- IDW and I have a few of them myself uh, in particular I have the uh, Born Again by David Mastichelli which is absolutely gorgeous we talk about it on the show um, so this was a great conversation had a great time ch- chatting with Scott uh, very uh, happy that he was able to make some time and answer a lot of questions uh, the Marvel Masterworks forum uh, as always came through with a lot of uh, great questions uh, for Scott and uh, he was very patient in going through the, the questions and he has some great stories here about um, uh, Darwin Cook uh, about Alan Moore and so there's a, a lot of good stuff that I think you're really going to enjoy. I do want to thank the uh, the comic book sorry the Marvel Masterworks forum uh, for some for some, yeah, supplying some good questions uh, that definitely helped uh, add some extra um, depth to the interview in terms of uh, specific uh, things you want answered. Um, some of them I didn't specifically um, quote or I didn't really give anyone a proper shout out which I sometimes do and sometimes I am remiss and I just kind of build into the episode um, some of them were just kind of answered naturally uh, which always works out but I do want to thank uh, Silver Age Marvel Man uh, I want to thank Rumpelstiltskin uh, Comics Ate My Brain uh, let's see um, let's just see uh, CFD uh, these are all names of people on the Marvel Masterworks forum uh, I think that i Charlie Brownest and I think that's everyone. Um, I may have missed one or two, but I apologize if I did. Uh, I think uh, To Be Hulkinued 2 is also another one. Ozzy Stew is another one uh, who added questions. So uh, thank you so much for submitting questions. Uh, again, it, it definitely helped add a, a, some extra dimension to the interview, so I do appreciate that. Uh, without further ado, let's jump right into the episode where I talk with Scott about his uh, time uh, working in and around the comic book industry and what we have to look forward to, forward to from IDW in the future from in terms of artist editions. Um, anyways, thanks again for downloading this episode. You can email me at comic shenanigans at gmail.com rate and review the show on iTunes subscribe to us on iTunes and also listen to us on Stitcher our next episode uh, is going to pro- either be a conversation with Tom Brevoort or a conversation with Jed Winnick and then uh, the, the next non-reviews episode will also be whoever I didn't do the uh, in the next one so uh, for the next couple episodes 764 and 766 you uh, have some great interviews to look forward to as well but without further ado here is my conversation with Scott Dudenbeer Scott, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you this evening? I'm good, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for asking me to be on. Absolutely. Um, so let's go way back just to start. Um, when did comic books first become part of your, your life when you were younger? 
Oh God! The first time I remember, <laughs> the first time I remember reading comics was in 1968. I was five years old, and I was on the island of Aruba uh, at the gift shop of a hotel there. My dad used to work for a Dutch company that was based in Aruba because Aruba is a Dutch island. And this is before it became a big tourist destination. But uh, I remember when my mom would go to the Aruba Caribbean Hotel, there was a little gift shop, and uh, I would I would literally just sit there and read comics for hours while she was off doing things. It was a different world, you know. Kids were left alone to their own devices at a much younger age than today. You know, now I think any parent in today's world would not do that. Um, and then. Um, you know, I, I just uh, I just had a uh, love for comics. I would um, luckily, you know, when I got a little bit older, there was a comic book shop in New York City called Super Snipe that was close to my apartment, and uh, it was actually halfway between my apartment and my school. And so I went there, and they also <clears throat> they also had an art gallery uh, that had original comic art. So that's the first time. I ever saw original art. Interesting. Now, when you were first reading in Aruba, like, what, were you reading Marvel or was it DC? Like, what kind of comics did they have there? Um, I remember the very first comic that, well, I should say the first comic that I have a clear memory of was an issue of Action Comics. I think it was, I think it was 368 where... Superman, it's a Neil Adams cover where Superman is flying towards an invisible dome and Supergirl is yelling for him to not hit the barrier or else all of the the hair college town would explode. <laughs> and Superman Superman says, Great Scott, at this speed I can't I can't stop in time. He can he could say all of that, but he couldn't stop. <laughs> um, I was mainly I was mainly a DC kid growing up. I really didn't start reading comics until um, my teenage years. You know, I was a Superman, Batman fan, but uh, also a lot of the other titles. I mean, you know, like most collectors at that time, you know, comics were very cheap, and I just used to buy, you know, 10, 20 a month. You know, there weren't as many comics then. No, for sure. Now, it's interesting, so you mentioned the, the seeing original art for the first time. Was that, I mean, I, I think for a lot of us when we're kids, we don't really make the connection that, you know, there's people putting this together, we just kind of see the comics. But seeing original art that early, did it kind of have a transformative experience in how you experienced the art, having seen it in a kind of an earlier stage before it's kind of colored and in the actual page? Yeah, definitely. I, I, remember, I remember in particular there was a, a Neil Adams Batman page that was in this window of a comic that I read, and I remember looking at it thinking, that's so strange, it's in black and white, and then I, you know, I went up closer to the window and I looked at it, and it was just so beautiful. Uh, Neil Adams was my favorite artist as a kid, and, um, um, yeah, so I, I started looking at original art when I would go to uh, the old uh, Phil Suling conventions in New York, and, uh, you know, occasionally there was artwork, and I would I would look at it, although I didn't buy anything until years later. Although I did collect sketches um, when I was a kid. I would call up artists and beg for sketches, and they would be kind enough sometimes to uh, mail me something. 
And what were some of your first sketches? Let's see. Um, Alex Toth, Al Feldstein, Jack Kamen, Harvey Kurtzman, Jack Kirby, um, you know, a few others. Wow. And do you still, do you still have all the, all those sketches that you had when you were younger? Oh yeah. What, uh, what did Jack uh, Kirby uh, draw for you? Uh, it's Captain America from the from mid chest up, waving, saying "Hi, Scott." That's awesome. So when you when you yeah, yeah, yeah. when you when, uh, when you first buy and like you, as you said, like you you were collecting sketches, but when you first buy your first original art piece, what piece was it, or which artist was it that was kind of like the first one? You know, this is terrible. I don't remember. <laughs> It wasn't this seminal moment in your history. You know, it it wasn't. I I, I mean, it, it was really cool, but uh, you know, I um, I mean, original art was everywhere then. It was a lot cheaper. It didn't it didn't have you know the same kind of um, I don't know. It didn't it didn't strike me as anything really unusual because it you know it shows it was all over the place, and um, you know it was just something else to collect. But I. I gravitated more towards original art the older I got because, you know, I love I love good stories, but it's hard for me to read a good story if it doesn't have art that I think is good also. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always gravitated more towards the art than the actual story. But, you know, to me, it's really, I mean, they're companions. You know, it's two sides of the same coin. You know, uh, you, you can have... A, Good comic. Is that a good story? Mm-hmm. Now, when when did you start becoming again much more into original art and actually kind of dealing in original art? Because that's a big kind of move to make, and especially at a time and place where that probably wasn't nearly as prevalent either. Um, no, there, there were there were a handful of comic art dealers. There was a guy in. Uh, well, there was Russ Cockrum. He was one of the big ones. Um, Tony Despoto. Uh, there was a guy named Stu in Pennsylvania, but I forgot his last name. Real nice guy. Um, there was Super Snipe, Mitch Goetz. There was another shop in New Jersey. And I can't remember the name of it right now. I'll remember it. Um, so there weren't a lot, but, uh, you know, it was, it was, there were, there were definitely guys around. Um, you know, I started dealing in art probably in 1981, um, just a little bit, you know, I, I used to sell comics a little bit at shows and I got more and more into artwork. And then, um, you know, as we got into the mid eighties, uh, it became my full-time, my full-time profession. No, when you're working as an, an art dealer, did you ever think that I'm going to break into the industry and be an editor and like that? Like, how to? Uh, it's interesting to see kind of how the different jumps you've made. I'm just curious: were you ever thinking like I want to work in the industry, or were you just happy to be an art dealer? You know, I never had any aspirations to be an editor or work for any of the major companies at all. Um, you know, I used to help out, not not getting paid to do it, but I used to work out or help out rather for Atomica Press, um, 
uh, book called A1. Uh, I was sort of their American liaison. I um, I was friends with, uh, uh, and still I am, with Gary Leach and Dave Elliott. I actually met them because I lived over in England for uh, um, close to a year in 1986. And uh, I actually did work for a comic book company while I was there called Quality Comics, which uh, was run by Diskin, and they were... Um, um, they were doing uh, American versions of uh, 2000 AD comics like Judge Dredd. Mm. And uh, um, so I, 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 I decided to go to, uh, to England just because I was young and foolish and wanted the experience. And I had a friend who lived there who owned a comic shop that he bought actually off of Des called Quality Comics. And, uh, um, and I just kind of be into a job at Quality Comics. Um, you know, I knew enough. Uh, I knew enough of the sort of lingo to make it seem like I knew what I was doing, and uh, it was a real um, experience learning a bit of uh, production behind the scenes stuff, and uh, it was fun until I moved back to New York. And when you come back to New York, what are you doing then? Then I really kind of kicked up my art dealing. Um, that was really what I was doing for the next 10 years. And the way I became an editor at, uh, at Wildstorm Productions, which is Jim Lee's company, um, Jim uh, was and, and is a good friend of mine. And when he, when he and the rest of the guys, the initial seven started out image comics uh jim offered me a job at some point you know i think it was probably in 1992 maybe and he offered me a job and i said what would i do and he said ah we'll figure it out which is you know a very jim thing to say <laughs> so um eventually you know he, he wound up asking me three or four times and finally the on the fourth time it was, or third time, I don't remember, it was, I remember it was 1984 during Comic-Con. Uh, he had just started to move into office space in downtown La Jolla, um, in the La Jolla Bank building. And, um, you know, the night, I, I think the night before Comic-Con started, I went out to his house and we played some poker and, and he said, yeah, let's go take a look at the office. And so we drove down, and he, um, we're walking through the office. And, you know, it was, it was still under construction. There were two floors, um, really one floor or half of one floor, and then sort of a quarter of, of another floor upstairs. And, you know, he was just saying, okay, this could be your office, this could be your office, this could be your office. And I said, well, you know, what would I do? And this time he had an idea. You know, I would come out and I would sell art for the guys in the studio, and he bought a um, an iris printer, which is sort of better known as a G clay printer. And he said we would do a fine a line of fine art prints and things like that. And you know, I I thought about it for a while, and I just said, okay, all right, I'll do it, just because. I was kind of bored selling original art. You know, it, it really wasn't much of a challenge to me anymore. Um, I'd kind of reached 
a certain level and um and eventually um i moved out there i moved out there uh actually april 10th will be my uh, 25th anniversary of starting a wildstorm oh wow that's amazing so yeah and then when i went out there i uh i basically um started working on a few different things and i remember i kept on talking to jim about the line of books that he was doing and i kept on suggesting different creators and he um anybody who knows me knows that i'm never adverse to giving my opinion on something so i um, i kept on telling him you know why don't you try this guy why don't you hire this person this person and eventually you know, Jim said, okay, smart guy, you know so much, you edit a book. <laughs> and my first book was a was one that Jim had already set up, which was a, um, a Gen 13 Max crossover. Um, and it was logical for me to do that because I'm good friends with Sam Keith. Uh, the first book that I worked on, that was a one-shot. The second book that I did, which was the first book that I worked on from the very beginning, was Gen 13 Ordinary Heroes, which was written and drawn by Adam Hughes. And, uh, you know, eventually, um, eventually Jim, for some reason, thought it would be a good idea to make me editor-in-chief. Well, actually, first I was, uh, first he made me special projects editor. And, uh, and I did a, a bunch of different things. And then um, after about a year, he made me editor-in-chief. And so I, I pretty much completely was removed from doing anything really over the next couple of years to do with actual original art sales, even though we still sold art and prints, even though we still did them. Um, but I became more and more involved in publishing. Hmm. I'm going to come back to that in a second, but when you were doing the original art sales and kind of, as you said, the kind of late eighties, uh, early nineties, after you came back from, uh, from London, um, given the market explosion that had happened in the actual comics themselves, was the original art market having the same kind of uptake and, and volume that, you know, these books were selling so well, people wanted a lot of the original art from them as well. Or what was that, what was that period like? Yeah. I mean, Original art then was was a lot different than it is now. You know, it, it's gone through so many changes in the last 20 years. <laughs> I mean, you know, you have now a piece of comic art going for one point, I think, $2 million, $1.2 million by Bernie Wrightson. Um, a piece in Europe, actually a couple of pieces in Europe have gone f- for more than a million dollars. Uh, a piece by Bilal and Hergé. Um, you know, I remember in the early 90s, there, when they started running auctions at Christie's and Sotheby's, uh, there was one piece of art at, I believe it was Sotheby's, not Christie's, that had the cover, the Carmen Infantino cover, uh, Flash 123, which is the famous Flash of Two Worlds. Hmm. In at that auction, that cover went for seventeen thousand dollars. <laughs> at that time, I mean, that was you know that was ridiculous. Nobody had ever paid that kind of money for comic art before. And <clears throat> when um, 
I mean, it was one of those moments where people just broke into applause, and, and you know, the sellers were there, and they had big grins on their faces, and, you know, I don't know, I mean, half a million dollars, maybe, maybe more. Um, I mean, you know, there have been, there was a Neil Adams cover that sold recently for $600,000. There was a Robert Crumb piece that went for $600,000 recently, too. Um, you know, it's very, very different than it used to be in terms of value. For sure. So and that's, that's fine. That's good. Yeah. It's obviously a very changing uh, landscape from where when you left it. You said you were kind of getting bored with it. Was it just, as you said, not really a challenge? Like it was kind of easy or you just wanted more, you know, a different challenge in life, I guess? You know, it was easy. I mean, I would... You know, I, I didn't even I didn't even have a computer. You know, in the early '90s, I didn't have a computer until I moved out to California, and you know, I I would put out an ad in the Comic Buyer's Guide every month or two, and I would go to comic shows. I used to go to I used to go to about a dozen shows a year. You know, four of them were in. Europe. I used to go to the UCAC, United Kingdom Comic Art Convention in September, and then in late October, early November, I would go to Luca, and then in late January, I would go to Angoulême, and then in March, uh, there were usually other Italian shows, a second Luca or a show in... um, in Rome, and then I would do San Diego, Chicago, and other shows. So, um, but at the same time, you know, all this stuff really left me with a lot of free time. You know, I, you know, at it four or five in the morning, I'd get up at eleven or twelve, and then you know, I'd check. I'd go to my post office. I'd see if any checks came in. I'd pack up art. I'd send it off, and then I'd go to the movies with my girlfriend. You know, it wasn't exactly a, uh, um, you know, it was a pretty, it was a pretty fun yet um, easy life. Mm-hmm. So when, you, when you're working for Jim. Certainly and, didn't have much of a challenge. No. So you're working for Jim, you become the editor-in-chief. I'm sorry? When you're working for Jim, you become the editor-in-chief. Um, when, my question is, I guess, uh, when you're, you know, becoming an editor, et cetera, and you're working on these books, how does your relationship with Alan Moore begin? with Alan when so at that time Alan had done some work for us on Wildcats Uh, he was brought in by my predecessor Mike Heisler and Mike Heisler actually is the guy who bought uh, the publication rights to League of Extraordinary Gentlemen from Alan and Kevin um I eventually wound up editing that book. Um, okay, what happened was when, what was the name of that uh, company that uh, Rob Liefeld and uh, Jeff Loeb had? It was Awesome, right? Yes. Well, when Awesome kind of imploded, it was sort of a weird, a weird circumstance. When um, uh, I had not heard that they had gone out of business, and literally the day that it happened, I was con- I was in New York. It was it must have been must have been March of 
1977 because that we were in New York, me and Jeff Campbell and Alex Garner uh, for a Danger Girl tour. Hmm. And I remember I was at my hotel and I was contacted. I think he might have sent me an email. I, I don't think he called myself. Anyway, he... Um, um, Brandon um, Brandon Peterson contacted me, uh, who was doing one of Alan's books for Awesome. Um, I, I forget which one. And he called me up looking for work, and I said, "Oh, sure, Brandon, but you know, I, I thought you were working on on a book with with Alan at Awesome." And um, Brandon said. <laughs> Brandon said, well, Awesome just contacted me and they are closing down everything on this line. And, and, and I said, okay, then, uh, you know, I'll be in touch. So it was probably like midnight at that point. And I was, I was in New York and I was in my hotel room and I remember thinking, okay, it's midnight now, which means it's five o'clock in the morning in England. And so I, I waited up until five in the morning and it was nine o'clock in the morning in, in England. And I called up Alan and I said, hi, Alan, it's Scott Dunbeer. I'm calling to see if you'd be interested in doing some books for us at Wildstorm. And Alan, Alan said, oh, well, uh, thank you very much, Scott, but I'm, I'm quite happy doing what I'm doing now with Awesome. And I said, oh, you haven't heard. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and, and he said, he said, heard what? And then I told him, well, I heard last night from Brandon that Awesome is shutting down. And I would like to tell you that if there's anything you would like to do, I would love to do it with you. And Alan said, well, okay, um, I need to make some phone calls. Can you call me back a bit later? And I said, sure. So, I don't know, four or five hours later, I called him back, and he said that it, it was true. He had confirmed it. And he told me that in a week, he would send me a proposal for an idea for a book or two. And I said, great, Alan, it's, you know, whatever you want to do, if as much or as little, if you want to do one book, if you want to do two books, whatever it is. And then, I don't know, five, six days later, I'm back in California and a fax comes over on the Wildstorm fax line. And it was the proposal for the ABC line. And it was for all four books. Um, and that's how it started. Wow. What um, what was it like uh, editing someone like Alan Moore, who has a very distinct style and you know definitely draws is very heavy? Um, what is it like to kind of be his editor and, and work with him? You know, <laughs> I'll tell you, Alan is a very intimidating guy. In terms of his scripts. He's a very nice guy. You know, he was always a pleasure to talk to and, you know, we used to talk probably three or four times a week. And it's funny, you know, his scripts 
always have something at the very beginning to a new artist. Okay, this is how I see it. If you have a better idea, go for it. (laughs) Except, if anyone's ever seen one of Alan's scripts who's listening to this, they are ridiculous. I mean, in a good way. You know, they are single type space. They are immense. They are dense. Um, He goes into incredible detail. If he wants a scene of a library, he'll tell you what books to put in the library. (laughs) Um, You know, if, I mean, there might be a character that he asks for who is in the background, you know, drinking a cup of coffee and, you know, tossing the cup away. You know, it's, it's just incredibly dense and well thought out. Um, as an editor, it, it's, you know, incredibly easy. It's fun to read, and he really has everything there. Um, you know, I, I'm not the kind of editor that'll make changes for the sake of changes or ask for things like that. Um, but, you know, every, every writer is different. You know, you have, you have guys like Alan who, or Warren Ellis, who is completely on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of detail. You know, Alan will have a page or two of a guy walking into a room, you know, detailing, you know, there's a ceiling fan or, you know, the, the blinds are half drawn, whatever. Warren, on the other hand, will say, a guy walks into a room, he sits at a chair, in a chair by a table. You know, it's it's completely different, but it's usually just as well thought out and as well done. Um, you know, I mean, the years that I worked with Warren, um, you know, I did occasionally ask for changes, but they were more just things that he sort of forgot and missed, not rather than saying, yeah, gee, I don't know, I think you should go in this direction. Um, and, you know, other writers, I mean, I, I've worked with guys like Sam Keith who... I love working with, and it's a much more, I don't really want to say collaborative, because he's the writer, but he bounces ideas off me, and we talk things through a lot. Um, so, I mean, everybody's different. For sure. So I'm curious, so how did your, you have an interesting evolution, because again, you start kind of in original art, you move into working in editorial, and you're working on books with people, and then you eventually make the big transition over to where we, a lot of people know you now, which is working on a very well-received series of uh, collections of, of old material. So how does the next shift kind of happen in your career when you do start working more in collected editions? Oh, that's easy. I got fired from D.C. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and then um, and then I wound up getting a uh, job offer from IDW, and you know I, I the the goal wasn't to uh, go as much into collections as as I have gone. Um, the goal at first was to do uh, well some collections. I mean, like you know, one of the things I brought over was Dave Stevens' Rocketeer that um, that we uh, recolored um, using. Laura Martin, for instance, who was, that was sort of the one thing Dave wanted. He wanted Laura Martin to color the Rocketeer. And so we agreed to that. Um, you know, I, I was very close with Darwin Cook, and Darwin wanted, Darwin, Darwin was a very special guy. He worked, he always had his editor. You know, before me, it was Mark Chiarello. And after Mark, 
I was the guy. Um, I started out editing the spirit with him, um, which we bonded on pretty quickly. Um, you know, I mean, I, I knew, I knew Darwin and I really, you know, I loved his work and I respected his work a great deal. As a matter of fact, funny story when Alan, Alan Moore for a time, well, <laughs> now for a very long time, didn't want anything sent to him from DC, but I told him that I had a book that I just read that I wanted to send him because I thought he would like it. And it was the first issue of New Frontier. Mm. And I sent it to Alan, and he read it, and he said, okay, you can send me his stuff. <laughs> and, and I did. Whenever Alan, and this is before I started working with, with Darwin. But, you know, I was a big fan of his work. And then when we, um, when we worked on, uh, on the spirit, um, it was funny. When he was, when he was doing the spirit, he, you know, we were getting close to the date to send it off to the printer. And there was one bit of dialogue, uh, a sequence between um, Fajel and a print that he didn't have and he couldn't get. And so I sent him an email. You know, I, I, was, I kept on sending him emails. Hey, Dar, how's it coming? We've got to go. we got to get going on this. And I sent him an email, and I said, okay, how about something like this? And I wrote it out to him, and he just, he just said, that's perfect, great, run it. You know, and so, um, you know, I think that's when we really, um, really kind of hit a groove, started to hit a groove together. I mean, we love, we love all the same stuff. I mean, you know, a, a call to Darwin is, you know, 15 minutes talking about work and 45 minutes talking about Will Eisner or Frank Frazetta or <laughs> Bruce Tim or, you know, old movies. <laughs> That's great. But, but anyway, so getting back to your question. So basically, I think I'm getting back to your question anyway. <laughs> so basically Darwin um, was one of the guys that I... Um, wanted to work with again, and, and he wanted to work with me. And so uh, his dream project was always doing Parker. And um, he had tried to get the the rights to it um, before, and he he wasn't, or actually, he always tried to get a publisher to get the rights to it. And, um, you know, there was a Canadian publisher. He even did a, a comp of uh, what the first cover would be that's, actually hanging in my bedroom right now. Um, but he... He wanted to do Parker, and he had been... And no one had been able to get the rights to it. And luckily, Ted Adams, who's the gentleman who hired me, he's, at that time, he was the... Uh, well, he's one of the co-founders, and he was um, the publisher of IDW at the time. And turns out that I mean, and honestly, I wasn't familiar with Parker. You know, I'd seen Point Blank, but I never read any of the novels. And um, it turns out when I mentioned that to Ted, Ted just stared at me and said, that's my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, um, I, got, uh, I got a hold of Donald Westlake's email, and I emailed him, and I told him that... I had a guy who wanted to do adaptations of Parker in graphic novel format, and I sent him along 
some cover comps that Darwin had done previously when he wanted to do Parker. And I remember getting this long email back from Westlake. I, I don't think I have it anymore, unfortunately. But he sent me this nice email, and he said, oh, you know, it's impossible. It can never be done. You know, it's just not, you know, it's not the right thing. Nobody can do it, blah, blah, blah. And the last thing he wrote was, but obviously this guy is really talented. And so so I knew I had a chance. And I, um, I then put Darwin in touch with Westlake. And I said, you know, I, I emailed back Westlake and I said, can I put you in touch with Darwin and see if he can, you know, tell you what he wants to do. And I don't know if you ever met Darwin, incredibly charming guy, smart, um, and an avid fan of Donald Westlake. I mean, the guy loved Donald Westlake's writing. And they spoke, and, you know, Darwin charmed him. And we got the rights to do the graphic novels. And I remember... um, I remember when uh, when Westlake died. It was before it was before Westlake had seen any anything, and Darwin had actually sent Westlake a painting of Parker to his home, and Westlake had gone to I think it was Mexico with his wife Abby. And unfortunately, he passed away there. And he passed away before he ever saw the painting that Darwin sent, which I always felt was very tragic. And um, I remember calling Darwin and telling him, you know, I heard back, I got an email from Abby, and I um, I called up Darwin and I told him, and he was shattered, you know. I mean, he was probably shattered the way I was shattered when Darwin died. Mm-hmm. But... Anyway, so there was uh, there was Parker, uh, Rocketeer, um, the um, the stuff, uh, the Danger Girl stuff, because Jeff and I are close, and uh, then also the Sam Keith stuff because Sam and I are friends, um, and uh, and other things. You know, I I did that silly. Uh, um, <laughs> the one of the first things I did at IDW was presidential material, which. Uh, were the uh, Barack Obama and um, and John McCain uh, books, <laughs> the, um, um, and it's funny because at that time, you know, it was the first one. You know, in you know, the Spider-Man Barack Obama cover gets gets credit for it, but we were actually the first ones to do it, and uh, I was actually interviewed by CNN. <laughs> <laughs> they sent a film crew to our offices. But anyway, so my career took a major change, obviously, when I, um, when I left D.C. and I came over to uh, IDW. And then in, um, I don't know, at some point, I, I'd, I'd had the idea of doing artist editions um, earlier, and I spoke to Ted, and part of my deal was when I, when I took a job at IDW was if there was something that IDW didn't want to do, that I could do it myself or elsewhere. And so I just assumed that Ted was going to pass on artist editions because it was a completely untested thing. And also 
they're really not cheap to produce. And um, um, but Ted, you know, um, you know, thankfully said, no, 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 let's try it, let's do it here. And uh, you know, that was that was kind of what it was like in the old days at IDW when I first started. Um, you know, Ted was always open to my crazy ideas. Hmm. So. So what was it like getting the getting the, the first IDW Artist Edition off the ground? Like, what kind of process, especially the first time out, did you have to go through to kind of put it together? How long did it take to, you know, collect the pages, et cetera? How long did it get the, the green light on which one was going to be the first one? Because obviously that's the proof of concept. You have to be able to prove that this thing is going to work. So how did you go about selecting that first volume? Well, Rocketeer was was honestly my first choice from the beginning um, for a couple of reasons. It was some of the best comic art done in, you know, the last 35 years or at that point, uh, I don't know how many years, but um, it was, it was something, it was something really, really special. Um, And because we were already doing because we were already doing the um, the new collection with the with all the um, coloring by Laura, I had access to the original art, and so we did some tests. We um, we uh, did some scans. We played around with them. We checked paper. Um, we I remember getting um, I remember getting some. Uh, big hardcover books uh, just filled with blank paper, you know, to get a feel for how much it would weigh and what it would look like. And it was also a matter of figuring out how to do it. I mean, originally, you know, I didn't think it was viable to sell them through comic shops because of the price. And we wouldn't be able to give a full discount on it because, you know, these things really are expensive to print. You know, they're not cheap. And, I mean, depending on... Depending on the print run, you know, I mean, if we if we print a lot, it's it's not bad. If we print not so many, you know, it's high. Um, so initially, the idea was to sell them just direct to consumer, and then and then something really odd happened. Um, a lot of retailers found out about this, and. You know, some of them were actually in kind of a you know minor uproar about it because they wanted to be able to sell these also, and not only sell them, but you know this was something that they wanted to own because they're collectors too, a lot of them. Um, so I got a call from my friend Cliff Biggers, and Cliff, um, you know, really is one of the best retailers I think in the states, and he. Um, he wanted to, what did he call it? He wanted to initiate something called a courtesy discount. That was it. And where retailers would get the opportunity to get them at a discount, but not near what normal discount was. Instead of being 50% off, they got 25% off. And I think because of that, when we wound up soliciting it, it actually did better than we thought because it really got the word out in a big way and people ordered it, you know, it, it went well and we went into actually multiple printings eventually. 
um, which, you know, it's, it's rare enough to do a multiple printing of a regular book, but to do, mm. a, you know, for a $100 book to do three printings, I mean, that's pretty unusual. So, so when when it does so well, like what what emboldens you to kind of go after you know bigger fish, or what are the big fish initially in the you know the first few years of the program where you were like, well, these are the ones that'll maybe help pave the way for maybe the, some of, some of the smaller, more niche books. Like, which are the ones where you were like, if we can get these, those were sell that'll help us, you know, make the make the smaller books happen. You know, it's not really a matter of making the smaller books happen. It's more a matter of I mean, every book has to make a profit. You know, I mean, we're, you know, IDW isn't in the business of of publishing at a loss. And I mean, you know, I mean, if if I was, if I ever win, you know, the Mega Lottery <laughs> or Powerball or whatever it's called, I, you know, I'd start a comic company and I would do of things like wordsmith (laughs) which my guess is you've never even heard of wordsmith no um it was it was it 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 it, it's a book that i really really liked you know it's it's a it's a comic about a pulp fiction writer you know and his life and it also you know has some pulp fiction kind of stories that he does too um but to do to do a book like an artist edition, you know, it's a big commitment, so you need to make sure it's going to sell well. Talking about big fish, well, I've always been a firm believer that I have pretty good taste, you know? I think I have okay taste, so I went after the stuff that I like, and the stuff that I like is Walt Simonson. Thor, mm-hmm. Walt Simonson, Manhunter. Um, I love EC. You know, EC is my favorite stuff. Um, and I'm a big fan of of Commandy by Jack Kirby and all of his Fourth World stuff, as well as his Marvel stuff. And I'm a big fan of Joe Kubert's Tarzan. So, you know, it was just a matter of going out there and getting the rights to those things as well as create our own books, you know, like Hellboy. You know, I mean, Hellboy and uh, Bone grew, uh, things like that. You know, the more books I had under my belt, the easier it was to talk people into, uh, into doing it. And at this point, you know, I honestly don't know exactly how many books I've done. I think it's about 75 artist editions, and that's including artifact editions. Um, and, um, yeah. What what prompted you guys to kind of break off and do the artifact editions as well? Is it more of kind of knowing that some of that material would never be, like you would never have enough for the artist editions, but still wanting to put it out there? Well, it's funny. Um, it was something that I always kind of thought of and then dismissed. And I, I was actually talking to John Byrne once, and I was saying to him, yeah, it's a shame. You know, we had done the Fantastic Four book, and he really liked that. And I said, it's a shame that we could never do an X-Men book like this. And he said, why not? And I said, well, you know, I mean, they're artist editions. You're supposed to be able to read them, you know, and there's not enough pages to, not enough complete stories to do that. And, and he just he just said, 
so what? Why not just do it anyway? And, <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's actually true. <laughs> and so, uh, and so, John Byrne takes the credit for uh, artifact editions from me. <laughs> where do you uh, where do you keep all your Eisners? It, though that makes sense and now what, what does it feel like to I mean obviously again you'd already had an Eisner but to get so many Eisners for the, this project that is you know I would say has become like one of your legacies in comics like these are beautiful editions the yes they might be slightly niche at times but really like there's these gorgeous editions of these amazing books uh, lovingly like painstakingly put together like you know that's obviously something to be proud of what do you think of that legacy of of these artist editions there's again such a um, a, a staple of quality that every book has, and that's because of the care you put into it. You know, it's funny. I um, thank you for those kind words, and I take great pride in in them in the books. Uh, although it's hard for me to look at them because I always just see the flaws mm. and. Um, it's sometimes a little bit uh, hard. Some books are, are I can always look at, you know, like the um, um, the EC books are a lot easier for me to look at, but you know, some of them didn't quite turn out as well as I had hoped. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in them, and I'm very happy that um, people responded to them, that they uh, seem to enjoy them like I do. Is there any particular uh, artist edition that you think that, that sold out the fastest or this is the hardest to keep in print? Yeah, but first let me give a shout-out um, to... Uh, there's a website that um, um, a gentleman named Scott... Oh, God, I can't remember how to pronounce his last name. Anyway, he has a website that is the best website on artist editions anywhere. Not just IDW. I mean, everything from Graffiti and Hermes Press to, you know, whoever, Titan. Uh, it's called aeindex.org, and it is truly a great website. And I actually use it all the time to uh, double-check things. <laughs> oh, you were asking about what the... Uh, I was, yes. Um, I guess the one that probably sold out the, the quickest was probably... Probably the first one, the Rocketeer, because that one really shot out. Um, and then the the next one that really went quickly was David Mazzucchelli's uh, Daredevil: uh, Born Again. Mm. That's also the best-selling artist edition to date. It took me a while to track down a copy of that one because I wanted it so bad. And it was yeah. By the time I was, I realized that it was a thing. It was gone, and I finally was able to track one down for a relatively reasonable price. But it is just absolutely beautiful. No, thank you. It's, I mean, you know, it was um, it was a pleasure working with David. He's an incredible talent, and uh, um, I keep on I keep on trying to tell him I want to do um, Rubber Blanket as a uh, not as an artist edition, but as a uh, as a collection because that was a phenomenal um, 
three-issue series mm-hmm. that he did. Uh, and actually, you know, we did an artisan edition, which is an 8 by 12 inch version of an artist edition of Daredevil Born Again, uh, and that's just gone into a second printing. The first printing, it was first uh, published uh, at the end of last year. So I'm actually curious about that one. So when I first saw that, so I was surprised, like, was there any discussion about just bringing the original artist edition back into print, or what kind of led to the decision to come up with this uh, slightly smaller, slightly more affordable version? Is it just as clear as that? Is it more affordable? Yeah, it's more affordable. It's something that people who don't have in their budget 100 bucks or 150 bucks in a lot of cases, um, that kind of money. So, you know, it's still larger than, than a regular book like this, but it's... Um, um, it's more affordable. It's available at comic book shops and Amazon, much at a better discount. Um, you know, just a way to introduce people to this kind of thing. For sure. So, um, before I ask you about you know kind of random questions um, from the Marvel Masterworks forum as a quick lightning round, because I know we're almost out of time. Um, are there any kind of upcoming projects you can tell us about that you're working on that, that you can tease? Let's see. Uh, right now, um, I just got the FNG for Dave Cockrum's X-Men Artifact Edition, and FNG stands for Final Not Glued. Uh, so it's basically, the book is printed, and I have to now go through it and make sure that there aren't any glaring errors, and um, um, and then uh, I give the word and it uh, gets bound up and the books are shipped over. From uh, from either Korea or China, depending on where they're printed. Okay. Uh, then the um, other book that uh, is going to be coming out. Well, two other books that are coming out soon that we've announced and solicited are EC covers, um, which will have approximately 140 uh, covers by uh, all the best EC artists, from Wally Wood to Johnny Craig and Harvey Kurtzman, um, and. Uh, um, after that, uh, the Michael Golden Micronauts book is coming out, uh, and that's an artist edition that'll have six complete issues and tons of other stuff, including pinups and coming soon ads and covers and all sorts of nice extra stuff, plus a lot of pages from the other six issues. You know, we have... I think I have something like eight or nine pages from the first issue, including the first page. Um, and uh, oh, one thing I got recently that's kind of cool that just made it in to the book was the corner box art by uh, Golden. Oh, wow. Um, and then uh, Frankenstein, um, that was originally slated for October, but it's been moved back to February. Um, and... Anybody grousing about that? All I have to say is I only have one chance to do this book justice. So please be patient. Um, And I also have another book that we haven't announced yet that will be in previews uh, next month. Um, Well, assuming there is a previews next month. Um, And I can't uh, say what it is right now, but it's a big one. It's something that people are going to be, I think, really, really stoked about. That's awesome. All right. I think we only have a few minutes. Or do you have a, a few a few minutes for some lightning round questions? You know, I got I, I got time. My uh, my kids are are uh, are 
patiently waiting, so don't worry, I got time. Okay. Uh, so first up, we got uh, any chance to get something from Barry Windsor Smith, artifact or anything complete? Um, you know, I I always hold out hope. So we'll. Uh, thank you. I always hold out hope, and um, you know, I'm a huge fan of. Barry's work, um, you know, going back to, uh, well, you know, I think one of the greatest comics of all time is Red Nails, you know, artistically. It's just as good as anything. And I think it's fascinating to look at the artwork to evolve because there was such such a lag between the first part of the story and Savage Tales number two and Savage Tales number three. It's literally like a year between them. And his style completely changed from the first part to the second part, which is amazing to me, and both equally great. Um, so, yeah, I would love to do stuff with uh, with uh, Barry Windsor Smith. You know, yeah. a tremendous talent. What uh, What is your current dream artist edition? I'm very lucky. I've actually done a lot that are, that are my dream artist edition so far. I mean, my favorite stuff when I was a kid was, you know, Commandy, Tarzan, and Manhunter. And I've gotten to do all three of those. <laughs> and, you know, EC, I've gotten to do Wally Wood, who, you know, is one of the five greatest cartoonists in comic history, um, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, the best of EC, where I had a bunch of Kurtzman stuff, the Mad Book was great. Um, actually, you want to hear a funny story about the Mad Book? Yeah. So, the Mad Book is truly one of my favorites. Um, you know, the Harvey Kurtzman Mad stuff is brilliant. And, I mean, to me, it's as brilliant as his war stuff, which is really brilliant. Um, the, um, I only had one guy in mind to write an introduction for it, and that was Terry Gilliam, because... Terry Gilliam actually used to work for Kurtzman back in the 60s on Help Magazine. And so I had tried to reach Gilliam through his Hollywood agent, and I got nowhere. And then I got a hold of his uh, literary agent, and and I sent like three or four... um, I sent like three or four uh, emails asking if he would be interested in, in writing an introduction to this book. And they were all, you know, just silence, nothing. And Darwin Cook used to say that I was tenacious. So I sent one last email like two weeks before the book was going to the printer. And this time I actually got a reply. And the email said, Dear Mr. Dunbeer, you know, thank you very much for your interest. Um, Mr. Gilliam's literary agent is on vacation right now, so I'm handling her emails. And I can tell you that Mr. Gilliam has no time to do this. You know, he is just, he's on a new movie and da da da. And so um, I, I apologize um, and I wish you well. But I took the liberty of forwarding your email to him. And so, two hours later, I get an email from the guy saying, "Um, 
I spoke too soon. Mr. Gilliam will write the introduction for you. <laughs> and then two hours after that, I had the introduction. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, people, you know, people like that, I mean, there's a certain bit of of his career that he owed to Kurtzman, and he wanted to pay it back. And, uh, and he did. He wrote a great introduction. Wow. Next uh, lightning round question. I'm just rambling. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, not at all. That was a good story. I liked it. Um, what have been the top 10 selling artist editions so far? We don't release the numbers. All right. That's fair. I'll tell you the best selling one is definitely um, the uh, Mazzucchelli, Dear Devil Born Again. Okay. Is uh, Conan by Buscema and also Savage Sword in the cards? No plans at this time, but Gusema's um, um, Conan is something that I would be uh, very happy to do, especially if I can find enough material that he penciled and inked himself. Uh, next question. How did the holiest of holy grails, the forthcoming Michael Golden Micronauts, come about? <laughs> um, that is something that we had tried to talk about for a long time, not as an artist edition, mind you, but as uh, as a collection um, for IDW. Chris Ryle is a huge fan of Micronauts and especially ROM, and so those were two things that he really wanted to do. Um, it never really became an issue with, with um, an artist edition until the last couple of years. Uh, there's a collector who uh, is known to original art fans, but I'm going to respect his privacy and not mention his name. He has a large collection of Michael Golden Micronaut stuff. He's a huge Micronauts fan. And, you know, he reached out to us and he said, look, you know, if you guys want to do this, I can help. And, uh, and, and he did, you know, he, he was, he sent me a bunch of copies and stuff and we, we talked and I, I said to him, you know, it's really unlikely that this is going to happen. But, you know, we brought it up and we were told no. And we brought it up again and we were told no. And we probably brought it up a third and fourth time and we were told no. And then finally we got back a yes. And, you know, it's the original, the original company that did the toys was... Amiga, which was later acquired by Hasbro. And there were some issues between Hasbro and Marvel because of legalities. And, I mean, you know, it's, you, look at, you look at the Micronauts books and, you know, the Fantastic Four and Man thing are in them. Um, but we, uh, you know, we were able to convince Hasbro and then um, Marvel said, well, okay, if they're willing to do it, and, you know, then we're willing to do it. And, uh, and so that's basically it. So, and then I, then I just, you know, I contacted Golden and his agent, and you know, we talked about um, what it would entail, and uh, um, and uh, you know, we, um, I told him what he would be, his compensation would be, um, what his uh, comps would be, and uh, you know, they agreed to it, and now we're uh, now we're ready. That's uh, again I mean, another. Done. It's another testament to your tenaciousness, right? In this case, you know, I would give um, 
just as much, if not more, credit to Chris Ryle mm-hmm. because you know he he's he's definitely been. Um, you know, this is in his uh, wheelhouse, and so this is a book that he really wanted to see done also. And then, you know, the next step is someday, you know, hopefully, knock wood, you know, maybe we could do a, uh, a collection of, of um, all the Micronauts, you know, just the regular color comic Micronauts. But, mm. but that's getting ahead of ourselves, you know. That's <laughs> there's no deal done for that. There's no plan for that as of yet. Now that you're an editor of, you know, obviously looking at all this original art through the artist editions, do you still collect original art for yourself? A little bit here and there. I mean, I can't afford original art anymore, you know, the price, I mean, for the stuff that I like. Um, although there is, um, there, there are things that aren't that expensive that I still buy. Like I have this uh, uh, strange... Uh, um, the strange love of uh, Family Circus, so I probably have like <laughs> seventy originals of that. <laughs> but um, um, which people make fun of me about. Um, <clears throat> and um, you know, I, I I try to buy stuff from new artists that I like. Um, and um, um, yeah, it's you know the stuff that I would want um, would just be you know too much too much money. So. That's that's fair enough. As you said, you have good taste, right? I, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I'll let you go in just a moment. There, there were a lot of questions that came in, so maybe we can talk again at some point in the future. Keep, and... keep them going. I got time. Okay. Um, what artist edition would you love to do? If, if you do. I, I have a few more minutes myself, so I can okay. Uh, what artist edition <laughs> okay. would you love to do but can't find enough available pages for? Jack Cole's Plastic Man. Mm. That's a good one. I only know of four pages that exist. Oh, wow. I mean, you know, I'm hoping that somebody has, you know, 500 of them in their garage somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What artist edition would you love to do but don't think there is a market for it? Besides Woodsmith. I wouldn't do that, that as an artist edition. I just love that as a comic. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I would love to do something with... Um, I don't know. There's there's a... Uh, going back to my love of Wally Wood, I love uh, Rand Holmes' uh, um, stuff from the uh, uh, late 60s and early 70s. I um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard for me to think off the top of my head of what what wouldn't do well that I that I would want to do. Mm. Um, you know, I there are so many that I can think of that I would love to do that I think would do well. Um, there are others that uh, that wouldn't. Oh, I'll give you one. Um, Dan DeCarlo's Archie. Mm. I would love to do a Dan DeCarlo Archie book and a Harry Lucy book. I've actually thought about. Rather than doing just a Dan DiCarlo book or a Harry Lucy book, doing a flip book that would have um, two covers. So it would basically be half Dan DiCarlo and half Harry Lucy, but only the stuff uh, from the uh, 50s and early 60s. Luckily, I have a whole bunch of Dan DiCarlo from the late 50s. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, next question. This is a little bit of a longer one. It was, uh, what was your biggest find for an artist edition? Was there a volume you wanted to publish, but thought you would never find three to four pages, but then found them or were finally given permission to scan them? Yes. Um, and I can't really say what it is, but, uh, there's one collector that had a bunch of art that his collection enabled me to do several artist editions. Wow. What Actually, that brings up the question. When you are dealing with some of these collectors who have you know pieces that you end up needing or end up kind of completing an artist edition, like what, what is that process like of getting to you know scan those original art pieces? I'm just curious how that process even works or, and what that communication and collaboration is like to be able to do that. Well, it, it depends. I mean, a lot of it has to do with trust. Um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky because as a, as a former art dealer, I know a lot of collectors and I know a lot of art dealers and I'm good friends with a lot of collectors and art dealers. So if I don't know where something is, then it's likely that someone I know knows where it is. Um, with that one guy I was alluding to a few minutes ago, um, you know, I spent, well, I spent six days scanning his collection. And not all of it, mind you, but, you know, the stuff that I wanted for books that I wanted to do with him. And, and, you know, that was over, that was two trips, three days each of just like nonstop scanning. Um, Also, let me just say, the software has jumped dramatically in recent years. It used to take four to six minutes per page to scan. And that's a long time if you're scanning 300 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now I can do a scan in about a minute. Wow. Which is great. That's huge. So that makes my life a lot easier. Um, I travel a lot. I was actually, uh, if it wasn't for the uh, coronavirus right now, um, I'd be getting ready to go back east. I was planning on um, going back east uh, Thursday, this coming Thursday, and coming back this coming Sunday, and I was going to be scanning uh, art from three different sources, um, you know, over uh, over three and a half days. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, you know, remember the old TV show, Have Gun Will Travel? It's, well, it's Have Scanner Will Travel. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes, sometimes, um, you know, I can drive to them. Sometimes I have to fly. Uh, there are some people out there who will mail me art, um, which is very helpful because I like to do the scanning myself. Um, it doesn't always work out. You know, sometimes I get scans from outside sources, um, which generally I don't like to do because I'm so picky. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you can spot those pages in an artist edition or an artifact edition, the ones that, you know, aren't quite as nice the scans but you know to me it's you know I mean I've I've certainly left out pages because of scans but uh, if it's an important page or an important story I'll sort of suffer through it and honestly a lot of times people don't really notice the way I do Mm. I mean you have a very well trained eye after all this time no I'm just a picky bastard (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, a good question um, or an interesting question that came in on the Marvel Masterworks forum was, uh, why did the art pages from the 80s have the corners cut off at 45 degrees? Um, you know, I've heard different things. I, I've never really had a definitive answer. I mean, Mark Evanier would probably be a better guy to answer that question than me. I, what I had heard was, and again, take this with a grain of salt, I do not know if it's true. I heard that when they... Um, when they used to um, drum scan stuff, they would cut the corners so they could have a, they could insert it into a slot or something. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly. Again, don't, don't take it as gospel. Um, you'd be better off asking somebody like Evan here. Okay. Um, a, a question that came from another, uh, another uh, poster was, uh, do you, do you know for sure, or if any complete issues of Amazing Spider-Man besides 2033 and Amazing Fantasy 15 even exist, regardless of whether or not you have access to them, for the Ditko stuff? Oh yeah, for the Ditko stuff. So are there are there any complete issues besides 2033 and Amazing Amazing Fantasy 15 that even exist, or do you know if they exist? No, no, I'm, I'm saying yes, there are. Oh, there are. Okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Wasn't sure if my connection dropped in part of my question. Okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, um, and and as for, I mean, we haven't been given the green light to uh, um, to do a Spider-Man book with Marvel uh, by Ditko anyway, so it's kind of a moot point until uh, until that's uh, resolved. Um, I can tell you that I know the family of Steve Ditko would like to do it. Um, I sent I sent. Um, uh, I sent uh, uh, some of the Fantastic Four books, the two Fantastic Four books by Kirby, uh, to the family, and they, you know, they love them, and they would love to see that uh, that done. But there, you know, there are issues um, right now which I can't even begin to speculate on. Um, um, but you know, I have, I mean, I right now have scans of twenty, twenty six, thirty three. And Amazing Fantasy 15. I probably have a dozen of the monster stories scanned, um, and I have about maybe another, I don't know, 150 or 200 Spider Man pages, pinups, interiors, a couple of covers. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. I have enough to do two books. <laughs> Well, and obviously, I mean, I'm pretty sure those obviously would sell if if, if the contracts can ever kind of be figured out. I would think so. You know, I mean, it's it's certainly you know a book that I would love. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of the book that if I get that one done, that's kind of the one I see as being you know isn't really anything else to say. Hmm. I mean, you know, there's you know to me the the. I've done a lot of really good ones. I've been very lucky in being able to do a lot of really good ones. I mean, the Fantastic Four one, well, actually both of them are, to me, just, you know, I love them. And the there are so many that I really love. Steve Ditko is truly one of the, you know, it just doesn't really get much better than that um, from a from a quality standpoint and a historical from historical significance. I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, the last question I'll ask before I let you go for the evening is, uh, and this did come from the, the collected editions as well, uh, they were asking um, if the Carl Barks Artist Edition announced several years ago will ever happen, and if not, what happened? Unfortunately, you know, as is sometimes the case, the art you hope is out there isn't always out there. And, you know, there there is... There is a good deal of bark stuff out there, but I have not, um, I have not been able to locate enough uh, for a book. And if I do, then you know, of course, it's you know, I mean, Carl Barks is you know one of the gold standard. You know, I mentioned my favorite five, or I said I had five favorite cartoonists, and Wally Wood was one. Well, Carl Barks is another. Hmm. So. Is it one of those things where like, you kind of leave it on the back burner and once in a while you kind of look around to see what's available? Like, obviously you have current projects you're working on, but how many other things are kind of percolating in the back of your mind that kind of casually looking for once in a while to see if you can find them? Well, I'll put it to you like this. If I'm at a show and I'm scanning art and a guy has, you know... 10 pages from three books that I'm actively working on, but he has 20 pages that I'm not working on but are great art, I'll scan everything. You know, I mean, I have, you know, I have a lot of art scanned by a lot of different artists that, you know, eventually I'll have enough in many cases to do artist editions or artifact editions. So actually brings up a question that did come up on the uh, on the forums. They were saying like you've obviously scanned a lot of pages over the years that might never make it into an artist edition. Um, would there ever be a potential? Absolutely. Would there ever be a potential to kind of put together some of these orphan pages of the kind of an like a, an artifact edition that maybe linked by theme or something else where you kind of be able to bring these orphaned um, pieces into <clears throat> into one big collection, or would that just be unfeasible? I mean, you also have to remember that you can't cross-pollinate. You can't have Marvel and DC. You can't have Charlton and Marvel. So that kind of limits it. And, you know, I I think it would be possible to do a book of, like, great X-Men stories. I've actually toyed with the idea of doing a best of the 60s, best of the 70s, best of the 80s Marvel book. Um, And... uh, I have, I have a lot of stuff from different things. Like, you know, for instance, I have scans of a beautiful Tony Salmon's Hulk story. That's just a gorgeous story. And it's like, I don't know, 12, 15 pages, something like that. It'll never be, there'll never be a Tony Salmon's Artist Edition or Artifact Edition because it would never, ever sell and there isn't enough work. But if I do a best of the 80s, that story is going in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I have one last question before I let you go. I thought I was done, but it turns out I'm not. Um, um, sure, no worries. What, um, obviously, a lot of the material that you've covered through the artist editions have been older material, um, with some of the newest stuff, I guess, being the Daredevil by Somni. What was that process like getting something that was much newer? Like, that kind of, like, is there a certain vibe that you go for with the artist editions that's usually of older, more classic material? And what was it like to get something much newer published? You know, again, I like to do stuff that I have an affinity for, and Chris Somney, it's actually pronounced Somney, because every time I talk to him and I say Chris Somney, he always corrects me. (laughs) Um, 
<laughs> and rightfully so. I do that to people too. Um, but, you know, he has a classic style. He has a very, um, a very nice sense of storytelling, you know, just a very talented guy. I mean, it doesn't matter to me whether something is old or new. What matters to me is if it's something good. You know, I mean, I have, I personally have a preference for older material because, quite frankly, it's it's harder to do, and it's sort of more important in. And when I say more important, I don't mean it's better art, but it is more important to get good scans of old art because. As time goes on, it'll be more and more difficult to do that. You know, whereas so many artists now are now scanning their own art. And, you know, thank goodness for that. You know, I'm glad we live in an age where people, where artists have scanners that are good enough to um, to do artist edition format books. For sure. With with uh, Chris's book, it's interesting, obviously, because it also includes the uh, what the, the script pages with Mark Wade. It was like so, obviously, it's a different vibe. Again, it's newer material. You also have this extra component that's being thrown in because you have this great uh, other resource in terms of the script. Uh, what was that like, even getting that from Mark? I'm sorry. Could you could you repeat that? Just with with the uh, the Chris. The Chris uh, edition. Um, how, what was it like getting Mark Wade's uh, script as part of the package? Well. That was kind of easy because I, you know, when I was talking to Chris about the book, you know, when I was talking to him, he was telling me how, you know, he did layouts for each page. And he also had the script, and he said on every page he does a little thumbnail on it. And so to me, it felt like a natural thing, but it wouldn't fit in one book. So that's why we had to do the second horizontal book, which, you know, was. Um, kind of fun. In retrospect, I kind of wish that it was done as a hardcover instead of a softcover, but, you know, the book, it was expensive to do, to do a slipcase and a second book. That made it a very expensive book to do. For sure. So my my bosses were already pissed off at me for, you know, saying we had to do it like that. (laughs) (laughs) Not really. They're very, they're really incredibly, um, um, they're incredibly supportive I mean overly supportive which is great absolutely well Scott thank you so much for taking the time today to answer all these questions and uh, it was really great having you on maybe at some point in the future I'm sure the Marvel Masterworks Forum has a million other questions they could probably ask you but uh, I really appreciate taking all the time yeah sure I'd be I'd be happy to thanks a lot Adam and sorry for my long and rambling answers (laughs) not not at all these are some great stories I really appreciate it sure my pleasure